I will take a, a page from the star. A moderator is to be seen, not heard. So I'm going to say very little except to introduce you to a stellar panel that we have here today. We heard at the beginning of this morning what the founders thought of direct democracy from a historical point of view. And we heard what a hands on man in the field of direct democracy has been doing with Ward Connerly. The three that I'm going to introduce you to now are eminent authorities in the process of direct democracy and have gone a little bit further and have thought about changes that might be made in the direct democracy format and how they will affect our public. Elizabeth Garrett, on my geographical left, um, is the uh, professor of public interest law, legal ethics, political science and policy planning and development at the USC Law School. She was recently appointed by President Bush to serve on the nine-member bipartisan tax reform panel that released its final report in November 2005. She is vice chair of the National Governing Board of Common Cause, and she's chair of its finance committee. She is the co-author of the fourth edition of the leading textbook or casebook on legislation and statutory interpretation. Before joining the faculty at USC, she was a professor of law at the University of Chicago and has been a visiting professor of law at Harvard Law School, the University of Virginia Law School, Central University, uh, Central European University in Budapest, and the Interdisciplinary Center Law School in Israel. She clerked for Chief Justice Thurgood Marshall on the United States Supreme Court. To my right, I'm giving it to them in the order, I guess no, the order of presentation will be Mr. Professor Matsusaka, who will lead off. But Professor Matsusaka, also on my left, is a professor of the Marshall School of Business, the Gould School of Law, and the Department of Political Science at USC, and president of the Initiative and Referendum Institute. He received his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago, has had uh, visiting appointments at the Hoover Institution, at Stanford University, UCLA, Caltech, and University of Chicago. He has served as a consultant for the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and is the author of the book, for the many or the few, the initiative, Public Policy and American Democracy, that was published by University of Chicago Press in 2004. On my right is uh, Dan Lowenstein. Dan Lowenstein teaches election law. And Dan Lowenstein has, like uh, uh, Mr. Connolly, has been a, a worker in the, in the fields. He's been involved in politics since... Uh, 1974's Prop 9, the Political Reform Act, uh, when he helped then Governor Brown, soon I guess to be governor again if he wants. Well, he was Secretary of State then. <laughs> Secretary of State then, uh, in regulating political activity and statutes. Um, uh, Dan Lonstein teaches election law, statutory interpretation, and legislative process at the UCLA Law School. He's a member also of the board directors of the award-winning theater troupe Interact and regularly brings the company to the School of Law to perform plays with legal themes such as Sophocles, Antigone, 
Ibsen's Rosmer Holm woke and became Munich court-martial. Uh, uh, Professor Lowenstein worked as a staff attorney at the California Rural Legal Assistance for two and a half years, and also, as I said, worked for the, uh, Jerry Brown when he was the Secretary of State, was the main drafter of the Political Reform Act. Um, he has served on the National Governing Board of Common Cause and has been a board member and a vice president of Americans for Non-Smokers' Rights. Professor Lowenstein's textbook, Election Law, uh, appears uh, to be the first text on American election laws uh, since 1877. He has written on such topics as campaign finance, redistricting, bribery, initiative elections, political parties, commercial speeds, and the Merchant of Venice. We start with Professor Matusaka. Uh, thank you for that kind introduction. It is a, a pleasure uh, and an honor to be at this event with such esteemed panelists and uh, such an impressive audience, so uh, thank you all. It occurred to me as I was thinking about uh, my remarks here today that uh, well, I'm a social scientist by training, and this is going to be an audience uh, panelist and an audience primarily of lawyers. So I needed to think a bit about, about what exactly I wanted to do. And I thought that my purpose uh, would be appropriate for me to give a bit of a social science perspective on direct democracy, which might be an, an, an interesting complement to, uh, to, to some of the other views that you might hear here. So, so in that spirit, what, what I'd like to do is tell you a little bit about some of the recent research, some of the recent understandings that are coming out of the social science literature and how those relate to some of the issues that, that go on here uh, that we're talking about today. The, the just, I think you probably all know this, but just the, the, social science, uh, the social science approach is really not so much to try to find out is, um, is direct democracy a good or bad thing or how does it fit into various legal frameworks, but, but to really take ideas and concepts that have been offered and to try to collect information, data, essentially historical information, and try to evaluate those arguments, because it turns out some of the arguments are, are, are better or seem more likely to be true uh, than others of the arguments. And some of the arguments that are sometimes made for and against the initiative process, it turns out, don't look like they're very well supported by, by the evidence. So what I thought I would do is pick out a few interesting issues that are, we don't have much time here, so I thought I'd pick out three interesting issues that are, uh, have been offered out there and just tell you a little bit about the facts that we seem to know uh, right now. So let me see. <clears throat> First one. The first one is there is a view that is often expressed that the initiative process and direct democracy in general is something that is new or, and or something that is somewhat exotic, something that is unique to California. Um, for example, uh, David Broder uh, wrote a fine book a few years ago, uh, the first sentence of which was, at the start of a new century and millennium, a new form of government is spreading in the United States. And he was referring to the initiative process. So, so a couple of, of facts here. The first state to adopt the initiative process was South Dakota, 1898. Um, some California counties, uh, it was available in California counties, 1890. Some California cities adopted 1898. By 1920, you had approximately, approximately 20 states or so had already adopted the process. Um, we don't know how many cities exactly because it's hard to tell, but a great number of, of, of significant cities in the country had already adopted the initiative process by 1920. And it was also used. Sometimes there's this notion that it was adopted a long time ago, but nobody used it. Well, that's, that's actually incorrect. It was heavily used 
uh, in the early decades of the 20th century, uh, the number of measures that were on the ballot rivaled what, what we saw in the 80s and 90s, for example. So, so the notion that it's something new, first of all, is a bit of a misimpression. If you want to put it in historical perspective, uh, it, the initiative process is older than, say, universal women's suffrage, direct election of U.S. senators, federal income tax, Social Security, and so forth. And, and none of those things, I think, we would think of as being particularly new uh, ideas. Uh, so, so, so the first thing to just keep in mind is that the initiative process is actually a very, a very old process. It's been around for about half the life of the republic. On the notion that it's exotic, uh, that it's somewhat unusual, um, it is true that the initiative process is more popular in the western part of the United States. Most of the states west of the Mississippi allow for initiatives. But it's also true that it is, it is available in all parts of the country. In the south, Florida and Arkansas have initiative processes. In the northeast, Massachusetts, Maine, in the, in the central regions. It's actually prevalent and available in all regions of the country. If you drill down a bit and go down to local Initiatives. You go to cities or counties, you'll find in the West, again, it's very popular, about 80% of the cities in the West appear to have the initiative process available. But even if you go to, to the Northeast or the Central States, it, it looks like over 50% of the states, uh, excuse me, 50% of the cities by the best counts have the initiative process available. And even in the South, you get well over a third of the, of the cities have the initiative process available. So, uh, again, it's, it's not true that this process is something unique to California. It's, it's all over the, the country. My, my favorite summary number is if you count up how many people in this country live in either a city or a state with the initiative process. Okay, so what fraction of the population lives in either a city or a state with the initiative process? You get over 70%. What that means, if you think about it, is that you have less than 30% of the population doesn't have access to the initiative process at some level of government. So it's actually more accurate to say it's very unusual not to have access to some sort of direct democracy in your, in your government. So, so again, there's this, there's this impression that some have that the initiative process is something new that just started to spread recently, but that's, that's really historically not, not entirely accurate. The reason I think this is important or potentially material is that often when we think about the initiative process, we, we want to think of it in terms of how does it fit into our constitutional framework? How does it fit into our government? And I think Americans rightly... Um, hold our government in very high regard, and we say it's worked very well. It's served us very well for the last two-plus two, two plus centuries, and why should you change something that's been working so well? Uh, the notion that this is some, some new innovation that, was, that would threaten a, a machine that's been working very well for so long. But I think the accurate thing to realize is that actually this has been a very integral part of American government for more than a century now. So if you think the last century more or less worked out okay, this, this, is a, this has been a part of it. This isn't something that we'd be adding new, new to it. Okay, so that's, that's one, uh, the first issue that I wanted to, to mention. Um, the second issue I want to tell you a little bit about some of the emerging research is on the issue of voter competence. One of the perennial concerns with direct democracy is whether voters have the, the competence, the knowledge, the expertise to really evaluate these complicated measures. Um, some people believe they don't and therefore they shouldn't be given this power. Others believe, uh, trust the common man, or they believe in aggregation in some way, wisdom of crowds, uh, and they think that it will lead to good, good decisions. So what do we know from a social science point of view? Well, social, social scientists have pointed out a couple of pretty interesting things recently. The first is that, and it's kind of a twist on, on what many people believe. The first is that if you go and ask voters detailed questions, if you give them a quiz, and say, tell me in detail what you actually voted on. We know 
without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they will miserably fail. They, they just can't describe what they voted on, and that's true for ballot propositions, and it's, it's true for candidate races. Um, it's true for if you ask them institutional features about the government as well. They just can't pass these sort of tests. Okay, so that's a well-established fact. What's, what's been pointed out more recently, however, is that it may not be critical to have that amount of detailed knowledge in order to vote wisely. Uh, and in particular, particular, social scientists have been interested in this idea of what in the jargon is called information cues, but just think of it as endorsements. And, and the notion would be something like this. Uh, suppose that I were, suppose that I was a diehard environmentalist. Um, and suppose there was a measure on the ballot that was titled force preservation measure. Now, if, I, if I'm an environmentalist, I want to know, is that measure going to actually preserve forests, or is it something that the timber industry put on there uh, with a clever title that would actually allow more trees to be cut? So one approach would be to go through, and I could read it, I could read the text, which is really hard, and try to figure out what it's actually going to do. Um, and we know that voters don't do that, and they're not very good at it. The other thing is that, again, if I'm an environmentalist, I could see if there's somebody that I trust to give me advice. So does the Sierra Club have an endorsement? Because it turns out if the Sierra Club has endorsements, and I trust them, and they have reliable experts, I can find my interest on that issue without being able to, to pass the detailed test about the measure. So, so what's become uh, an interesting research area is to try to understand how well can this work. So that's a nice idea in practice, uh, how well can this actually work. Uh, and there's been a, a number of attempts to try to understand this, looking at actual voting behavior or putting people in laboratory environments and so forth. And, and what comes out is that people seem to be remarkably adept at finding their way to their interest based on cues, uh, surprisingly so, in, in fact. So, so that's one. I don't think that case is closed, and some issues don't suit themselves well for that sort of environment. Um, um, but nevertheless, the emerging evidence suggests that that's, that's something that can work reasonably well. Nevertheless, that troubles people sometimes. Um, they still don't like, they might acknowledge that point, but they don't like the idea. It seems to bother them. They think people ought to, ought to look at, you know, how to really understand in some substantive way what they're voting on. Um, that's kind of an interesting issue. I, I think to be fair about it, if you look at legislators who are sort of held up as the alternative, um, you know, uh, they're voting on hundreds or thousands of, of bills every year. It's just, it's just not even feasible for, for them to read and understand in detail all of those measures. So, so I think we have to recognize that we're in a complicated world where there's a lot of business going on and no human being is going to be able to understand in detail everything that they vote on. So, so, so that's the fact. The question is then what's the best way to make decisions and, and what seems like uh, the people seem to be able to do a fairly good job as well. Um, it's probably worth knowing how do legislators make their decisions. Well, maybe sometimes they read, but they also probably rely on information cues or endorsements. They listen to what party leaders say. They listen to key constituents or, or constituent groups that they're particularly interested in. But they do the same sort of thing. They find trusted, trusted people who are experts and they go forward. Um, so, so, so in some sense, what the voters do isn't that, isn't that different than what probably legislators do or what, what many people do uh, in, in everyday walks of their life. Uh, we take prescription drugs. We don't really know the chemical composition of those drugs. We didn't read the clinical studies, but we listen to a doctor because we think the doctor has information. So there's a lot of what we do where we just trust experts. And so I don't know if it should concern us all that much that, that voters behave like that. Finally, um, the last issue that I want to just briefly touch on as far as the research interest goes, um, and that is the issue of special interests. So we heard this mentioned throughout the day so far, and that will continue to, to come up. The idea that the progressives had in mind with direct democracy was that it would be a tool to counteract special interests. So you all know the California story. There was a belief that the Southern Pacific Railroad had got a lock on the legislature, 
And as a result, the laws that were coming out there weren't something that the majority wanted, but were something that benefited a narrow, a narrow numerical minority. And so the initiative process was offered as a way to allow voters to the majority to reassert its will. So, so that's always been one of the primary arguments that's been appealing to people who favor the process. However, it's also been pointed out by critics that that can go the other way. It's possible that the initiative process can become a tool of special interest. How does that work? Well, special interests might have organizational advantages. They might have deep pockets. They might be able to get their people to turn out at the polls in greater proportion than the regular public who might not know what's going on. And it's been suggested by many that special interests might actually become, their power might be increased uh, uh, if the initiative process is available, and the majority might be even further di disenfranchised. So this is ultimately, which is what I like about it as a social scientist, it's ultimately an empirical question. It's really a matter of looking at the policies and looking at what does, what did, what did the public really want and trying to understand what actually happens in initiative states. So, so the evidence on this is actually pointing pretty clearly in one direction as well. When people go out and look at across a variety of issues, tax issues, uh, social policy issues, elect election law, and so forth, uh, it seems pretty clear that initiative states are much more likely to choose policies that the majority says that they want than non-initiative states. And we're at the point now where we've got enough data we can actually quantify it. It, it looks like policies are about 20% more likely in initiative states to be consonant with what the majority wants than in non-initiative states. So, so it looks like there's actually pretty, pretty big effects. Uh, so, so that is... So that is a, a quick run through of kind of the three, three issues I wanted to just flag here in, in my remarks in the few minutes that I had. Um, I, I want to be careful, and I always need to be very careful about this. With this kind of research, there's always the next study to come out that, that maybe we'll learn more and we'll learn that some of the conclusions that we've so far been meaning, been meaning to draw, uh, intending to draw might be a little bit off. But, but all the evidence so far is generally paints a fairly favorable picture, not, not an overwhelmingly favorable picture, but a, a generally favorable picture about the initiative process. And it suggests that it seems by and large to work okay, and it seems by and large to achieve the goals that the proponents had in mind. Thanks. As I was listening to the professor discuss direct democracy and investigation in the field, I, I saw my colleague, uh, Judge Stephen Reinhardt here. I know that Chief Judge Kaczynski should be somewhere nearby. And I was thinking about the Ninth Circuit's own exercise in direct democracy, which we call the end bank process, which means that a panel of three decides something and then we take a vote of all the judges to see if we want to take that decision away from the panel. And uh, they, I will tell you that unlike other circuit courts in this country where the Second Circuit has no in-bank hearings last year and the Sixth Circuit had eight, uh, we've been very assiduous practitioners of direct democracy. We've had 22. <laughs> For another view as to direct democracy initiatives and um, referendum, with a slightly different view as to their present um, acceptability, uh, Professor Beth Garrett. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is really a pleasure to be here with the Federalist Society and also to be on a panel with such 
terrific scholars, leading scholars in this area, and very good friends, so I feel very lucky. Um, I think that uh, John's talk, I think, is a particularly good way to begin this panel because it really sets up something I think very important, and I think that political scientists realized it before legal scholars did, and that is you can't just talk about direct democracy. You've got to talk about direct democracy, the initiative process, as embedded in a system that is overwhelmingly dominated by representative democracy. Um, and so what I have written about, what I think is the best way to look at this, is actually think about our country as having a system of hybrid democracy, largely representative, but with direct elements, initiative, recall, referenda, uh, that have influence over the representative uh, institutions, and the representative institutions have influence over the direct elements. I think that the notion of hybrid democracy is descriptively accurate. It's accurate in the way that John describes. Seventy percent of Americans live in a hybrid democracy of some sort. Uh, it is descriptively accurate in what we're going to have in the future, because when you have polls of people and you ask them, do you like the initiative process, they overwhelmingly tell you yes, even if, as they did in our special election uh, that Governor Schwarzenegger called a few years ago, they voted down every initiative. They still say they like the initiative process, they like it better than the legislature, they like the outcomes better. You do not see people retreating from direct democracy. If anything, you see them moving forward, particularly if you look at the world and trends there. I also think that it's normatively more attractive to have hybrid democracy. Uh, it was, as John said, during the progressive era, a way seen as a way around special interests like railroads, miners. From my perspective, what's most attractive about it, it is a way around the biggest special interest in representative democracy, which is legislators themselves. Legislators themselves design our democratic institutions other than those very, very few set forth in the Constitution. And they have a tremendous conflict of interest in designing those institutions. Those institutions, when designed by legislators, tend to be incumbent protecting and tend to, to not align with what the majority of Americans would want. So if you want to see reforms like redistricting reform, term limits, campaign finance reform, lobbying reform, those sorts of reforms, you need to have a system with direct democracy. It may not be passing the initiative, because one thing to remember, again, think about this hybrid system. It may be that the legislature will actually pass a few of those things because they want to head off what might happen at the polls. So I think it is both descriptively and normatively the case that we live in a hybrid democracy. And what I want to talk a little bit about today is an article that I think you have in your uh, materials that I wrote with Matt McCubbins, a political scientist, thinking about how to reform direct democracy, taking account of the fact that you do it in the context of hybrid democracy. So you can use both of these uh, uh, different institutions to make each one better. We call it the dual path initiative framework. And I want to just touch on a couple of aspects of it here, and I'm happy to talk more about it in the question and answers. I want to spend some time on the part of our proposal that talks about the proposal and enactment stage of an initiative process, and then also spend actually more time on the implementation stage, because I think that gets overlooked a little bit about how it is that initiatives get implemented, particularly when you keep in mind that people go to the initiative because the guys doing the implementing weren't willing to do it in the first place. So we have to, I think, kind of think about that as we think about hybrid democracy. So let's talk about the proposal and enactment stage. I think the biggest theme I want to talk about here is I think we can improve direct democracy, the initiative process in particular, by allowing more flexibility, by allowing for there to be more sort of uh, room for change over time. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about the, the proposal stage, the sort of stage before a vote. The way it works in, in every state is that those who are going to propose an initiative write the initiative text up in legal language. 
They then turn it into a government official, and after that's you know, been accepted, they can circulate petitions to get a certain number of signatures to get it on the ballot. Once that happens, you can't change the wording of the initiative. That's frozen. That's how it's going to be. Well, that strikes me as not particularly flexible, right? It is the case that between the time of qualification for the ballot and the election, there's a lot of discussion about these initiatives. It may be that people think of ways to change it to improve it that the proponents would be in favor of or would increase their chances for passage. In other words, there could be compromise that's better for everyone but can't be done through the initiative process. Now, it's not entirely out of the question, right, because the legislature is part of this bargaining process, if you will, could put its own constitutional initiative on the ballot or could pass a statute that did the same thing. So there's this kind of bargaining that goes on, but it can't affect the wording of the initiative. So what Matt and I propose is that you, when you qualify something for the ballot, you don't actually write out a legal text. Nobody's reading that. John is exactly right. Nobody is reading that. So what you would do is you qualify a 500-word or some kind of word policy statement. Here's what we're going to do in plain English. Do you want that on the ballot or not? And then during the period of time after qualification, because that's what people sign on the petition, and before the election, there's a period of time where there can be discussion about it, where the proponents post on a website what they would propose. There are legislative hearings. There's actually a kind of formal bargaining process, although the initiative proponents always have the right to walk away and put language on the ballot because they're not happy with what happened in the bargain. That, it strikes me, is a much, you know, and, and one thing to keep in mind, remember just mistakes happen. One of the examples of that, if you'll remember, for those of us who live in California, when Schwarzenegger uh, wanted to put on the ballot a proposal to change state pensions to define contribution rather than define benefit, he had to pull it from the ballot because the allegation wasn't, it, it probably was right, that the way it was written might have taken away death benefits for the survivors of police officers killed in the line of duty. Unclear, right? Surely that was not what the governor wanted. If he could have changed it to alleviate those concerns, he would have been in much better shape. But that's not the flexibility allowed by the initiative process. What other kind of flexibility am I talking about? Well, I also think we need flexibility after enactment, particularly in California. In California, as in many states, you can qualify and vote on a statutory initiative, an initiative that enacts a statute, or a constitutional initiative, an initiative that changes the state constitution. In California, unless the initiative drafters allow it, a statutory initiative cannot be amended, changed, repealed, etc. by the legislature. So it is extremely durable, extremely binding. Now, some initiatives do allow for some amendments. The one that Dan worked on, the Fair Political Practices Act, does allow for certain kinds of amendments, and so it's been able to be flexible over time. I think it's very important that statutory initiatives be flexible over time. Maybe you have some period of time in which they can't be repealed. Maybe you have some requirement that to repeal them it takes a supermajority in the legislature. Maybe you require that amendments have to further the purpose of the initiative. There are ways you can protect the initiative from being undermined surreptitiously by legislators, but I don't think we're served by an inflexibility in the statutory initiative uh, area. What about constitutional initiatives? Those have to be repealed by another vote of the people. There, what I would propose, and this is much more controversial, Matt and I proposed is that they would expire every 10 years. And if people wanted to reenact them, if they thought it had been a good thing, they could be requalified for the ballot with fewer signatures and with the possibility of some changes. 
but that every 10 years or so, we would have a chance as a people to decide whether or not we wanted to retain that or if circumstances had changed such that either they ought to be altered or they ought to be gotten rid of. So those are the kinds of flexibility that we would put into the system. In my remaining uh, minutes, I want to turn to a different part of the initiative process and one that we spend time on in, in the piece, and that is the implementation phase. I think this is overlooked. Some social scientists are studying it now, and I think we need to do more study. To the extent we lawyers think about it, we tend to think about courts overturning initiatives because they're unconstitutional or they violate the single subject rule or there's some other problem with them. What we don't spend a lot of time thinking about are those that aren't overturned by courts, that don't have any problems, they have to be implemented by people who were probably very resistant to them in the first place, right? Now, um, in a really terrific book I recommend called Stealing the Initiative, uh, political economists Gerber, Lupia, McCubbins, and Kuwait find that there are certain conditions that allow government officials to undermine or ignore initiatives more easily. They list four. One, if there's substantial technical or political costs to implementation, then you'll see lower levels of compliance. Right? So if you have an initiative, I always think of education initiatives as examples of ones that are often subverted and, and often not implemented fully. So if those who are going to have to implement them feel that they're going to face political costs with teachers' unions, etc., they're going to be less enthusiastic about implementing them. Second, if implementers face significant sanctions for non-compliance, they are more likely to work to implement the initiative. Third, when it's easier for the public to observe compliance, it's more likely that officials will comply. A good example of an initiative that tends to be implemented pretty fully is term limits. I can pretty easily see that. They've either served two terms or they haven't. And we can pretty easily observe when they cheat. And finally, if the number of people required for full compliance increases, the likelihood of full, full compliance falls further and further towards zero. Right? The more people have to be involved, the more you're likely to face the implementation problems. So Matt and I looking at that thought, well, how can we improve that? Right? That really subverts what the people want if they pass something and then it just disappears. And what we thought is, you know, there are some pretty complex initiatives that get implemented fairly faithfully. What makes them different? The stem cell initiative that I work with now as a university administrator, as we in our medical school go forward to try to get some of the stem cell money for the kind of research that we're doing, I think a lot about that. That one's been implemented pretty favorably and fully. Why? There was a person, Buck Klein, who was very enthusiastic about it, cared a lot about it, and has remained active. And there was a citizens' oversight committee that continues to oversee implementation. So thinking about that and thinking about some of these citizens' assemblies that we're seeing in British Columbia, et cetera, we have proposed what we call a Citizens Initiative Implementation Oversight Commission, the CIISC, that would oversee implementation of popular initiatives. So essentially, uh, what we do is each initiative would name in the initiative somebody to serve on this CIIOC that would then, as an agency, oversee implementation and be allowed to have hearings, bring publicity, bring suits, ensure implementation. They'd have to act by a majority vote, and you're going to have lots of people with lots of different interests, all interested in the initiative, but not all from the same political party, the same political ideology. So there's going to be some debate about whether to move in certain areas. I don't think there'll be full implementation of everything. There's not full implementation of every law that legislature passes. We don't actually want full implementation at all times. So it would be this kind of citizens' oversight committee that would be tasked with being a fire alarm to ensure that initiatives that the people vote for are actually followed through. 
Now, you know, again, I don't know if anybody's going to adopt this. I think it's interesting that more and more of these citizens' assemblies and citizens' oversight commissions are being seen, so we're hoping that maybe somebody will think this is a neat idea. It would be nice to actually write something in law review that uh, people take seriously as a policy matter. Uh, but um, those are the kinds of issues that I'm at least thinking about. Again, I think this hybrid democracy framework allows you to ask questions and answer them in ways that you can't by focusing just on one side or the other. In conclusion, I will tell you that I brought with me today, and I have outside uh, that anyone can have, a symposium from the Southern California Law Review on Direct Democracy that the Initiative and Referendum Institute at USC and the USC Caltech Center for the Study of Law and Politics uh, sponsored a couple of years ago. And it just contains more of the sort of leading, cutting-edge scholarship that I thought you might be interested in. You should feel free to take a copy. If there's not still some on the table, there's some boxes underneath. Thank you very much. As I was listening to uh, Beth, uh, I thought of something I read in, in Professor Matsusaka's uh, uh, article, and, uh, and I thought if her program had been instituted in Florida in the year 2002, the Florida constitutional provision providing for the minimum space that a pregnant pig should have would probably never have passed. <laughs> now we turn to, to a worker in the vineyards who's been there practically for 30 years or more and that knows, I think, both the academic and the practical sides of direct democracy, Dan Lonestein. Thank you, Judge Baer. Um, a day or two ago, I read a long book review in the New Republic uh, that, among other things, reminded me that the psychiatric profession is currently uh, revising their authoritative uh, thick manual that lists all the uh, known uh, psychiatric diseases and disorders. Uh, and I understand that one of the ones that they are uh, intending to put into the new edition uh, takes the exotic form of... Uh, an obsessive compulsion to invite Daniel Lowenstein to appear at panels and conferences. Uh, it appears that uh, there's only one human being uh, afflicted with this obviously antisocial uh, uh, disorder, and that is the otherwise charming uh, Gail Harriet, uh, which accounts for the fact that I am here and have been to uh, actually uh, uh, a few uh, Federalist Society uh, conferences, which I have always enjoyed. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be uh, not only on this excellent panel, but on uh, this remarkable program, uh, the, the schedule of speakers. Um, uh, but I've been to a few, but I think the high point of any Federalist Society conference that I've been to, uh, and I should preface this by saying, I don't think currently my liberal credentials are quite as shiny as uh, Judge Bea's introduction may have led you to believe, but always more important to me than any arguments between liberals and conservatives is just to, uh, in the short time that I have on this planet, to enjoy the spectacle of the human comedy as it goes by. And uh, at the first conference I went to, which was in Arizona uh, more than 10 years ago, one of the speakers was Judge Stephen Reinhardt. And uh, if you don't already know this, you'll find out in an hour or so that uh, he is as uh, brilliant and articulate and liberal a person as you are ever, ever likely to encounter in your brief tenure on this uh, planet. Uh, and the spectacle of him addressing this intelligent, large, conservative audience 
uh, in a tub-thumping speech uh, with as aggressive as uh, a defense of uh, liberal judicial activism uh, uh, as, as one could hope for uh, and watching the audience uh, just cringe in their chairs was something that I, I truly enjoyed and, I, and I'm so much looking forward to the reprise uh, of that event uh, uh, a little later in the afternoon. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, if I have any time left, uh, let me address two specific issues about the uh, initiative, and then if I have, very briefly, and then if I have some time, make a few general comments. Uh, one which was alluded to by uh, Ward Connerly uh, briefly is the single subject rule, uh, which uh, I think not every state that has the initiative has, but many do, um, including California, of course. And um, uh, I wrote an article uh, in 1983 uh, giving what I thought were very good reasons why the single subject rule should be um, uh, applied uh, liberally in the sense, meaning permissibly. That is to say, only in the most extreme cases should a, an initiative be struck down for violating the single subject rule. And at that time, uh, that was pretty well the way things were in America, with the exception of Florida, uh, whose court has, for, not originally, they adopted the initiative fairly late, I think in the 70s or maybe the 60s, uh, uh, and initially they fell in line with other courts around the country, but then they started uh, applying the rule very aggressively. Uh, and so, for example, as Ward Connolly said, they struck down the uh, um, uh, the, uh, uh, his uh, civil rights initiative uh, in that state on single subject grounds. Now, uh, if, if a court wants to strike down the civil rights initiative for what he described as the convoluted substantive constitutional uh, reasons that have been offered by a few courts, uh, you may agree with that, you may disagree with that, but I think we would all probably say, well, those are the kinds of things that we have judicial review for, whether or not, you know, whatever position we take on, on, on the particular issue. Um, but the single subject rule is quite different. Uh, uh, there are no great principles in the single subject rule. And as I demonstrated in the 1983 article, uh, it, it, it's entirely arbitrary because, of course, you can say um, preferences for on, on the basis of race and ethnicity is one subject and preference on the basis of gender is another. Uh, or preference in university admissions is one subject and preference for uh, uh, public employment, say, is another subject. But of course you can say that preferences uh, is also one subject. One is not superior to the other. You, you, you divide subjects for convenience depending on what you're doing. So this becomes a completely arbitrary decision. Uh, now, I got troubled um, uh, around the beginning of this millennium uh, and published an article, I think in 2002, which may be in your materials, uh, because a number of courts, including the California Supreme Court, uh, were becoming increasingly uh, aggressive uh, with respect to the uh, single subject rule. Uh, I think this is unfortunate. Uh, I think that may have subsided. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, does decided one case, I think erroneously. And by the way, they struck off uh, a, uh, a term limits initiative, uh, no, excuse me, a, re a redistricting initiative. I was strongly, strongly opposed to that initiative. Uh, it's not that I objected to their decision because they threw something on I me. Mean, I, I expected it to wreck, um, you know, several months of my life as I had to work in the campaign to defeat it. Uh, and I was glad that I didn't have to do that. But uh, uh, they just had no business knocking that initiative off the ballot. Um, I think they did it because 
uh, what it called for was for them to do the redistricting, which they they wouldn't have minded so much, I think, except then it had to be put to a vote of the people. And since the people are likely to vote down any redistricting plan, this could have been very embarrassing for them. But I don't think that was a good reason for them to strike it off the ballot. Uh, Second subject I want to talk about specifically is um, uh, qualification for the ballot. And the way it works in California, and I think increasingly in some other uh, uh, initiative states, is essentially you buy your way onto the ballot. Um, there's some still volunteer circulation of petitions, but it's an increasingly unimportant part of the process. And basically, uh, it, it makes virtually no difference what your proposition is. If it's very popular, you may be able to get it on uh, a little cheaper. But other than that, uh, it really doesn't make any difference. You just put up the money, and you, you get on the ballot. Now, this has been criticized, uh, I'm sorry, well, by a number of people. Uh, I'm sorry to say one of those people was me, uh, but I, didn't, I, I just wasn't thinking straight when I wrote this, uh, for uh, making the process only open to rich, moneyed interests. But that was a big mistake. Uh, you know, you say, well, well, how can that be a mistake? If it takes money, then it's going to be for moneyed interest. But that's not true. Uh, think, of, think about it this way. Uh, if you want to get a Rolls Royce, it costs you money. If you want to get a hamburger at McDonald's, it costs you money. Uh, the price of a Rolls Royce excludes all but the rich. The price of a McDonald's hamburger uh, uh, doesn't exclude anybody except people with taste. Uh, and that's not, the, it's not, it's not the price. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and the price of getting, you know, this is what, American capitalism is wonderful. It's amazingly efficient. And so to respond to a demand, we have remarkably efficient professional circulation firms who can get you on the ballot uh, equivalently to the price of a McDonald's hamburger. So the problem with the uh, system is not uh, that it discriminates uh, among groups uh, so much as that it, uh, it's an utterly irrational way of uh, getting measures on the ballot because it doesn't really, uh, we know that many people, not all people, but enough people will sign petitions because they're asked without regard to the content. So it doesn't really measure anything other than somebody's willingness uh, to put up the money. Uh, I think a better way to do it, I'm not going to hold my breath until we get this, would be to drastically reduce the number of signatures that are needed, do away with circulators altogether, and say, uh, uh, if somebody wants to qualify an initiative, fine, file it with the Attorney General and all of that, and then we'll make it available for whatever period of time at public libraries or post offices or uh, firehouses, something that's about as convenient to get to uh, typically as a uh, voting precinct, and anybody who wants to go in there and sign can ask for it, and, uh, and, and, and that's how it'll qualify. Uh, that way, you know, it's one thing to ask somebody to sign something. I don't think somebody's going to walk to a library, say, uh, unless it's something that they're at least reasonably interested in. Uh, but I do think that that's a, a problem with the process, uh, that we have this irrational system of uh, putting measures on the ballot. Okay, let me just stand back and uh, say a few words about the process in general. Uh, I describe myself as a moderate uh, supporter of um, the initiative. I guess, in a way, uh, my position on the initiative is similar to Lincoln's position 
uh, on slavery uh, when he debated uh, uh, Douglas in 1858. Uh, uh, I don't want to change what we've got here, uh, but I'm not inclined to go into some other state and tell them to, to change what they're doing. Uh, actually, that was Douglas's position, too. They disagreed on the territories, mainly. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, unlike Lincoln and slavery, uh, I don't say the initiative is morally wrong, nor do I say that it's morally wrong not to have the initiative. Um, I think that uh, what I would not do is what some supporters of the initiative uh, do, such as we heard Ward Connerly today, and although I only heard snippets of it, I think maybe Marcy Hamilton was taking a similar position this morning. Um, and that is to say we need the initiative because the legislative system is so bad and not representative and not accountable. I, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I know that I have very few who agree with me on the right on this or on the left or among the American people. Uh, all I have is the ghost of Winston Churchill, uh, which is good enough for me. And he said, as you know, uh, that uh, uh, democracy is the worst system of government ever invented except for all the others. Um, I think... If you stand back, I mean, you know, there are a lot, everything that you find unattractive about the system, or at least probably not everything, but most of the things that you find unattractive about the system, I find unattractive. I don't like earmarks. I don't like some of the kinds of debate that we get, the vilification, you know, all the whole catalog of things. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very ugly. But uh, if you stand back and take the long view, and I think that on constitutional questions, and this is a constitutional question with a small c, uh, you have to take the long view. And uh, our messy system, which has never been any less messy than it is now, uh, has worked wonderfully. Uh, we have a prosperous, free, strong country that uh, uh, for the last century or so uh, has been indispensable for, for any cause of decency in the world. Uh, and, uh, and that has come out of our messy two-party system, our messy uh, federalism, our messy redistricting, our messy Congress. Uh, it's all messy. And what I like about it is it's incredibly complicated. And even though uh, I, I live professionally off of the ingenious work that John Matsaka and many, many, many other colleagues, economists and political scientists and others do, to figure out how it all works. Uh, and some of the best work that they do is, is very valuable to me and, and in general. But uh, the great thing is they'll never figure it out. Uh, they'll never come close. They'll just cast light on certain aspects of it. And that's great. But it's a messy, messy Process. It's always changing. Nobody, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi doesn't understand the House of Representatives, and that's not a personal comment about her. Neither did uh, uh, Dennis Hastert, and neither did Newt Gingrich, and so on. Uh, nobody understands the House. Nobody understands the Senate. They're just too big, too complicated, and the same is true of the whole process. Um, now, so where does that leave the initiative? In my view, uh, the initiative can be a part of that messy, complicated process. If the, if the issue is cast, as it sometimes is among uh, theorists, uh, plebiscitary democracy versus representative democracy, well, I'm for representative democracy then. 
I mean, you know, the idea of putting everything to a vote uh, for various reasons is just not a good idea at all. But that's not the way the initiative works. The initiative is embedded within this complex, messy system. It, uh, it doesn't work in straightforward ways. Uh, just to take one example, which Beth alluded to, uh, even when a, an initiative passes, you don't know what's going to happen to it. It may or may not get implemented, and you don't know how it's going to get implemented. But that's no different from a statute passed by the California legislature or by Congress, and it's no different from a court decision. Uh, it's just the way the system is. So I think that um, you have to look at the initiative pro or con as not in isolation, but as part of this very, very complicated process, uh, I think that the arguments pro and con on the initiative are virtually unchanged from 100 years ago and more when people were first debating this. Uh, all of the arguments on both sides are greatly overblown. None of them really have a lot of force. Uh, there was an announcer, possibly the worst uh, sports announcer I've ever known in my lifetime. I'm not known, but you know, heard who used to refer all the time to the color and excitement of college football. And uh, when it really comes down to it, and after everything washes out, uh, I guess I'm a moderate supporter of the initiative because I think it adds to the color and excitement of American politics. Thank you. Before we uh, open the... Uh Flora, for questions, I'd like to practice a little bit of direct democracy and ask the panel members whether they have uh, any questions or comments about um, the subject matter that they would like to add. Beth? No, I'm happy to open it up. How about you, John? I saw you're taking some notes. Well, does this work? Yeah. Uh, just, I was thinking about. Best proposal, uh, which I've actually talked to her before, um, uh, this notion of, of making statute, statutory initiatives, uh, uh, making it possible for them to be amended, and also the issue of, of constitutional uh, amendments uh, sunsetting in some sense. And I just, uh, I don't know how much, I don't know how much I believe this, but I was, I was toying with the idea that, that perhaps one way to think about that would be that if you had, say, two-thirds majorities, then the constitutional amendments become permanent in some sense, just like every other amendment, versus if it was a, a squeak by, you might then put it up for some vote at some point. Yeah, we considered, actually, uh, if the larger the vote, uh, allowing it to be more durable, and we decided not to go that way, but I think that's you know, something that ought to be in the mix. Because our concern was that it might be at the time people are very enthusiastic about something on the information that they have, but that doesn't mean that after some experience with it, they might not in it want to at least have the opportunity to change it or the opportunity to rethink it. But, you know, I don't think that's a crazy sort of amendment. One of the interesting things I didn't say in the talk is I just noticed that one of the proposed constitutional amendments in Florida, uh, initiative amendments uh, dealing with property tax limitations by its very term expires after 10 years so that the people can consider whether that's the type of property tax limitation they want to continue with or whether they want to continue with one at all. So what's interesting is we're actually seeing in the market of politics, if you will, some of this develop on its own, and, and I think that's a, a trend that sort of supports our, our proposal. Okay. Any questions? Manny? Well, I want to uh, commend the panelists on an excellent array of, of views. I want to ask specifically, uh, 
Professor Lowenstein, but maybe the others as well would like to comment, and that is uh, your, your lukewarm, moderate support for the initial process didn't seem to take into account an issue that were Connolly mentioned, which is the a situation where there's a majority of people that fervently want different policy than the legislature is willing to give, and the such as the uh, issue of racial preferences in banning uh, race-based affirmative action, uh, such as Prop 13, uh, which uh, Howard Jarvis had to uh, toil in the streets of Los Angeles for years before he was able to qualify for the ballot. Uh, but it's turned out to be very popular and increasingly supported by the, the public in uh, polls uh, since it's been passed. Uh, don't we think there's a case that if we want better policy, not, not just in terms of the, the uh, color and excitement of the process, but if we really are aiming for better policy that reflects people's interest in liberty, in minimal government, in letting people maximize their own potential, isn't, it, uh, isn't there a stronger case, don't you think, to endorse the initial process to give the safety valve where the legislature is speaking to other special interests who have vast funds available, tremendous uh, organizations that can effectively combat the initiative process in general, at least give the people some, some opportunity to uh, enact good policy. Realizing that, I would say, I, I realize the initial process is double-edged and is forced for good and bad, but it seems to me, on balance, there's a strong case to be made for it. Well, you know, if I, if I took just your question and all the things that you said, there are two elements in it, and I think that uh, they're in tension with each other. Because one of your one element of what you said is what we might call procedural. That is to say, uh, shouldn't a majority uh, be able to uh, get what it wants? And maybe the initiative process is necessary for that. Uh, and the other was substantive. You said if we want uh, uh, a society that uh, uh, you know promotes liberty, and and you know, I can't repeat all the things you said, uh, but. I don't think that uh, the majority in our society shares your vision of uh, liberty and wants that. Uh, and I'm not saying you're right or wrong, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I just don't think that a majority shares that. I think there are none of us, none of us, who, uh, um, uh, who agrees with the majority on all issues. Uh, I mean, you know, now that I've sort of, after wandering all over the spectrum, ended up as a kind of a wishy-washy centrist, I think I'm probably in tune with the majority, that, you know, I'm sort of with the median voter more often than almost anybody I know. But there are plenty of issues on which I'm not. So you have to, I mean, if you look at the initiative historically, especially over a long period of time, uh, what you find out is that it's used by all, it's used successfully for all different kinds of causes, some liberal, some conservative, some wacky, some, you know, some that, you know, you, that are not wacky at all, but you can't really put them, uh, uh, you know, daylight savings time, uh, not exactly liberal or conservative, good idea, but, you know, so just all kinds of things. And we're all going to be losers sometimes, and we're all going to be winners, and, uh, uh, but that's true of the representative system, that, that's life. And I don't see any reason to believe in the last analysis that uh, the initiative is markedly either superior or inferior to the other processes that we have. I do think that uh, it's sort of common sense that uh, if we... Uh, 
if we have the initiative, public policy is likely uh, on the whole to be somewhat more in tune with what the majority wants. Um, uh, some people have sharply criticized that, said, no, that's not true. I think John Matsusaka's excellent work uh, has pretty much put that to rest. Uh, it is true. Uh, but I don't think that that really, uh, uh, you know, I believe in majority rule, but I don't believe in majority rule as the ultimate doctrine. It, it, it's, it's all part of this mix. And it, so your points are good, but I, to me, they aren't, uh, they're not good enough to make me more than a moderate supporter of the initiative process. <laughs> as for, <clears throat> good afternoon, for Professor Garrett, uh, some of us choked a little on your proposal for an oversight commission uh, adding a layer of bureaucracy over the direct <laughs> democracy notion, uh, it, particularly with the right to bring lawsuits and the like, like some sort of legal defense fund. Um, two questions. One is who oversees the oversight? And uh, two, isn't this what citizens can do anyway? Well, let me go to two first. Certainly there, are, there is the ability for people to work to oversee implementation. Certainly there's the ability for people to use mechanisms of government, of publicity, lawsuits, et cetera, to try to work. The problem is that groups sometimes who succeed in direct democracy may not be groups that continue to be cohesive after passage of the initiative. So they may not have the wherewithal to continue to oversee. Uh, the voters lose interest. The battle's over. They think they got it enacted. They kind of go on to the next thing. So I actually think if you're concerned about the implementation process, you should be concerned about the status quo because you may need to empower those who are able to succeed in the initiative process uh, to have some role, ongoing role to play in implementation. Now, you're not keen on oversight. I understand this is not a group that tends to, to like increased government, uh, although I think that this is different. Again, I think the stem cell example is I've been very interested to watch that. Um, it has been something that has moved along very expeditiously. It's gotten money out the door. Even facing lawsuits, it got money out the door. And it has done that with a citizen's oversight board, people who felt very passionately about this initiative and who have ensured that it continues to move along no matter what. Now, it also turns out it's something that a lot of people in California feel really strongly about. Indeed, I think a, a majority of Americans support what they're trying to do. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where perhaps this would have happened without the citizen's oversight. But I think that, that that was just an interesting thing for us to think about. So what we did was construct this panel. It would have to be made up of people who are not politicians. They can't hold political office. They can't be part of an agency or bureaucracy. They're named by the initiative proponents. They serve a limited period of time. They're not paid anything other than a very minimal honorarium. So these are people who are here to do, and they're going to have lots of different perspectives. You'll have somebody on from an initiative that dealt with racial preferences. You'll have somebody on a re, who was a redistricting advocate. Advocate, a term limits advocate, a, uh, a mental health provision. All these people have very different perspectives. So not everything's going to be pursued 100 percent, but there'll be this sort of, again, this sort of microcut place for more deliberation, more discussion, possibly more salience. Uh, the Citizens' Assemblies in British Columbia, which I don't know if you're uh, aware of, have been a very interesting way to introduce citizen input in an organized way, particularly on democratic institutions. So in the British Columbia example, they got together a, a group of citizens, selected two from each county, equivalent of county. They all came together. They had a political, a, a professional staff, and they made a recommendation to change the way of electing representatives in British Columbia and put it on the ballot for a vote. So, again, it's this notion of getting citizens more involved in the process. Um, 
I'm going to ask a question which will convince all of you that judges don't know all the answers. And it's this of this uh, distinguished panel. Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution says the United States shall guarantee a Republican form of government to the states. Has anybody ever sued to stop an initiative on the grounds that is violative of that article? Oh, yes. But the Supreme Court ruled that was a political question and so refused to enforce the guarantee clause against an initiative process decades and, ago. And what was days, it, they, didn't, they didn't deal with political questions. They, they decided this was non-justiciable. They were not going to deal with that. Dan, you probably... In the early 20th century, I forget the exact date, the Pacific... Uh, Marcy will know. ...states, something or other. Right. Yes, uh, Yeah, I have two questions. Uh, one for the moderator and one for Professor Matsusaka. Uh, is the remarkably high number of in-bank hearings that the Ninth Circuit has in any way related to the remarkable number of reversals that the Ninth Circuit has <laughs> by the Supreme Court? And to Professor Matsusaka... You mentioned Massachusetts. The answer to that is no, because <laughs> not so many of our in-bank decisions are reversed. Ah, right. well, that's good to know. Uh, <laughs> Professor, you mentioned Massachusetts as having an initiative process, but the recent experience with regard to a, the attempted marriage amendment in Massachusetts, I believe that was brought by an initiative process, but the legislature had to meet and approve it three times to set it for a ballot, and the legislature just adamantly refused to do it. So isn't the Massachusetts process ineffective? And isn't that one of the things you have to look at? Just not that they have an initiative process, but how effective is it? How, how effective can it be to get the vote before the people? Yeah, so you're, you're raising a good issue. Um, when we talk about states having the initiative process, it's different in every state in terms of signature requirements, in terms of votes you need. And, uh, Massachusetts has a somewhat cumbersome process where you have an initial period of collecting signatures and then the legislature has to take some action. And then you go back and you get more signatures. Uh, Nevada has a system where you have to approve the measure to consecutive elections. So there's a tremendous amount of, of variation out there in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of how people actually implement it. And those things matter. Uh, so, so, but Massachusetts has had some significant uh, initiatives go through. Proposition two and a half, which was kind of a follow-up of Proposition 13 here in California, was considered a very significant measure. So, it's uh, this thing that the, this, this recent case might be a legislative innovation, but but historically, it's it's worked reasonably well over there, I think. Can I say a word about Massachusetts? Massachusetts has one of my favorite stories about implementation. So Massachusetts passed by initiative a clean elections proposal, public financing. But because you can't do appropriations in an initiative, there were no appropriations. And the legislature refused to appropriate any money into the fund. So someone who qualified for public financing brought a lawsuit and said, I qualify, where's my money? And the Massachusetts Supreme Court said, that's right, he qualifies, you're going to have to pay him. The legislature refused to put any money in the fund, so they began to sell off the assets of the Massachusetts legislature, including cars and the love seat of the speaker. So what happened? Well, you know, I think this is the right, this, this is an answer, at least it's an accountable answer. What ultimately happened was Massachusetts repealed the clean elections law, which they could because it was a statutory initiative. But then they had to take, you know, they had to take the hit for actually repealing it as opposed to surreptitiously not funding it. So it's one of my favorite stories of implementation. Yes, sir. Yes, but one thing I haven't heard today yet is the direct democracy as far as a, a, a jury goes that would, uh, uh, turned out a law or not a, one to apply it to a certain case. Uh, it seems like that's another check and balance we have in our system that the founders, I guess through the common law, adopted. And uh, it, it seems in many cases the medical marijuana or the Vietnam 
uh, draft cases or the runaway slaves in the Civil War, that jury nullification has been used to say that, well, King John can pass this law, but the ultimate vote is the people have to turn it down and not apply it. Uh, I wonder if there's been uh, evidence that this is another way that uh, people are, are using their direct democracy to uh, <laughs> uh, uh, affect the legislative process eventually uh, and how, how this would work. Uh, I just haven't heard anything on this today yet. <clears throat> Well, the only jury nullification I'm really familiar with, having been a Superior Court judge in San Francisco, is uh, the um, spontaneous expressions of disgust with the war against drugs by some of our jurors when they sit down and they say, well, we would never convict anybody on a drug charge. And nobody's even asked them about the death penalty. But uh, I haven't seen any other jury nullification other than that. It's an interesting comment because I've never heard the jury uh, included in the devices of direct democracy. But and when you first said it, I said this is when you first brought it up. I thought, well, that's pretty weird. But as I've been thinking about it, I think that there's something to be said for that because it, uh, um, although obviously in a very different type of way, not involving initi initiatives, it does involve. Um, uh, sort of in the aggregate of cases, the, the people uh, directly involved in making government decisions. But I'll tell you this one anecdote. I was on jury duty uh, quite a number of years ago and uh, in a criminal case, and uh, the judge had uh, described – it involved the, the felony murder rule. And the judge had uh, – uh, and I never believed in the felony murder rule. Uh, it never made any sense to me uh, – and uh, so the judge read the statute to all the people on the jury panel, and uh, uh, it's a really complicated statute. And I was listening as carefully as I could to see whether it had the features in it that had made no sense to me in law school. And barely following him, uh, I, I concluded that it did have those features. Uh, and then he said, now, all of you people, is there anybody who didn't understand that? And nobody raised uh, his hand. And I was really impressed with my fellow citizens because here I am, a law school professor, and I had had to strain to follow this, and every single one of them uh, understood it uh, without question. So uh, when, they, when they, they called me up and, and when they got around to the voir dire for me, I said, I'd like to be questioned in private, please. So we went over to a corner of the uh, courtroom with the judge and the prosecutor and the defense attorney and the court reporter, and they said, you know, what's your problem? And I said, well... Uh, um, I don't believe in the felony murder rule, and uh, I think I, I could have possibly, you know, depending on what the evidence is, I could have a real problem in this case. So, of course, the uh, defense attorney wanted to keep me on so that the prosecutor would have to use one of his peremptories. Uh, so he said, well, but you would follow the judge's uh, instructions, wouldn't you? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, jury nullification is, is a really interesting question for people like us to, to debate about in the law schools, but I don't think I relish the, 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 the need to put it actually to the test for myself. And so the judge said, I've heard enough. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so I don't know what the answer to that is. Yes, sir. First of all, uh, thanks for some great food for thought in terms of real reforms to the process. I wanted to get your feel for two issues, uh, which are somewhat together. 
uh, and that's money in the process and special interests. Uh, it's my observation that most of the so-called reforms that legislatures pass around the country uh, are not reforms, but they're ways to make the hurdles ever higher. And they're predicated on stopping special interest influence, but every time you raise the hurdle, it means only the bigger special interests can jump over it, and a lot of the grassroots groups cannot. Uh, you know, how you define that grassroots or special interest is another question, but certainly makes it tougher and tougher. The other issue is that money controls. And obviously, uh, if you're in a, in a campaign, uh, it's better to have money than not to have money. In fact, it's better to have money even when you're not in a campaign. Um, but, it, but it strikes me that, uh, that in a candidate race, if you were told that one candidate outspent the other 10 to 1, you wouldn't have to ask who won. Whereas in initiative campaigns, I've been in campaigns where we were outspent 10 to 1 and we won. So I just wonder, uh, what are your thoughts on special interest influence uh, and how to reform it in a way that doesn't enhance that? Um, and what you think about the power of money in initiative campaigns vis-a-vis -vis in candidate races? Well, I'll take a first stab, and then, you know, I'm here with people who've written a lot about this. Um, I think that you're exactly right, that most of the reforms that people propose simply increase the price of admission or favor groups and individuals with more and more money. And that's one reason that Matt and I came up with this proposal, which would not do that. We're really trying to stay away from that. Uh, the question of money and direct democracy is a really interesting one. Dan Lowenstein did one of the very first studies on it, uh, still a classic study. Others have continued to study it. I think one thing you can say, and, and Dan did say that, is that money is a sufficient condition for ballot access. If you have enough money, you are guaranteed ballot access. Now, that bothers me because it seems to me that means that we're asked questions that groups and people with money want us to be asked. I think in the end we get the majority view on those questions, but I don't like that the agenda is so dominated by those who have money. And I think maybe one of the things we could think about are alternative ways to get uh, things on the ballot. I think Dan's suggestion, for example, on how to qualify, I've always been very much in favor of it, and I've, I've, I've actually said so down in public, and I have again now. Um, so I think that's a concern. I think the other part of money that people often talk about is that money can win elections, and that is not the case in direct democracy, as you say. I mean, there, the evidence suggests that money can, in sufficient quantities, sometimes defeat uh, uh, an initiative, but that it is not uh, able to pass something that a majority of people are not going to support. And, and that, I think, is, is, is makes it different in the direct democracy context. Now, we need to do a lot more studies about that. Since Dan's written, there have been increasing studies about, well, maybe it's not the absolute amount of money, but the timing of when the money comes in or uh, how the money is spent on what kinds of ads at what time during the campaign. We're trying to get more and more nuanced studies to figure out exactly what is the role of money in these elections. But it is clearly different than in candidate elections. And I think the key thing for me is to focus on ballot access as opposed to the campaign. Um, I don't know that I disagree with you as much on this issue as I do on term limits, but I'm afraid <laughs> I disagree with you on this one too. I think that uh, money uh, plays a much larger role in ballot measure campaigns than it does in uh, uh, candidate campaigns. Uh, uh, my view, as, as Beth accurately described it, is that uh, uh, it plays almost no role in passing 
an initiative. That is to say, if you're trying to pass an initiative and you've got lots of money and your opponents don't, uh, that money probably isn't going to help you that much. But if you're trying to defeat the initiative, uh, it, it's very important. It, it, it may not be as consistently so as it was during the period that I studied, uh, but it's still it, it's a major factor. Whereas in candidate elections, I don't think that uh, uh, spending money is that uh, uh, big a factor. Um, you, obviously, you see a big correlation between how much money people spend and whether they win or not. But, uh, you know, why do they get a lot of money? They get a lot of money because they're likely to win. I think the one area where it is a, something of a problem is uh, in legislative races, House races. Um, if we channeled more money to some challenge, so there are more challengers who could put on a more competitive race uh, if they had more money. Um, but I think, when, and, and I agree with much of what you said about the pitfalls of trying to regulate these things. But there is one other element which I think applies to candidate races and not very much to ballot measure races, and that is the question of corruption or, or conflict of interest. And uh, um, it, it's very hard to deal with, but I think that, uh, um, uh, you know, I think we have to have some controls on the campaign finance system uh, uh, to deal with that problem, and yet to do it in a way that's effective and that uh, doesn't get incredibly complicated uh, and that uh, doesn't intrude uh, significantly on uh, uh, freedom of speech and freedom of association. You know, I can see now, after having been in this uh, activity for almost 40 years, uh, it's, a, it's a heck of a lot more difficult than I ever appreciated when I got into it. One last question. Oh, can, I, can I respond to that? Yeah, sorry. This will be very quick. Um, you raised two issues. One on the, on the attempts to reform. I think you're right. My observation is that the reforms are almost always have the effect of making it more difficult to use the process. Geographic dispersion of signature requirements, uh, bans on paid, uh, paid uh, per signature uh, collections and so forth. It is somewhat uh, unfortunate that those reforms are never based on any evidence that shows that those things actually would help. Uh, they, they're, they're articles of faith, and they all happen to have the effect of making the process harder to use. Um, on, on the issue of money, um, it's a tricky issue. One thing that we know is that we do want people to have some in information uh, here when they vote on, on these, on these uh, issues. So, so speaking not so much to the qualification issue, but more on the actual campaign side of things, uh, it's critically important that people hear the, the, the opposing views. Um, we know that they're going to use cues when they make their decisions, so it's critically important they know who. Uh, is actually supporting these measures and so forth. So, so I, I think it would be uh, it would be potentially harmful if you were to restrict people's ability to spend and, and get their views out. That would actually make people less informed and could make the process work worse. I think it is potentially useful to make sure that information gets out about who's, who's supporting these things because that is very useful information for the voters to, to, to make their uh, decisions. Okay, one last question. Professor Garrett, one of the justifications that you gave for the initiative process was that the legislature can sometimes have a conflict of interest. This caused me to wonder, how would we go about implementing some of the changes or reforms to the initiative process that voters might perceive to be restrictions on their own power? Well, they tend not to vote for things that they perceive as restrictions on their own power. Um, and, and so perhaps that's why this is a Law Review article as opposed to a, a circulating initiative. Although I think what's interesting is in some of these PPIC surveys of voter views on the initiative process, there is a, a, sometimes an openness to thinking about flexibility. 
So thinking about ways to allow for change in between qualification and on the ballot. Again, change that the initiative proponents will accept, not change that's forced on them. Or ways to uh, 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 get more information out. Uh, there is certainly, I think, support for disclosure of uh, money and participants in the initiative campaign. So as we structured this proposal, we really did try to think about things that were apt to get voters' approval because these are going to be constitutional amendments, right? This is a change in the initiative process. It will have to pass a vote of the people uh, and the Oversight Commission as well. We were trying to get citizens more into the process. They've been very supportive of the citizens' assemblies in uh, California. They seem to like these citizens' oversight panels where they exist and they do in a number of initiatives. So, again, I, we were kind of trying to feed into the, th the kinds of reforms that voters seem to like. What they don't tend to vote for are the kinds of things that John just talked about and Paul, that is making it harder and harder to propose and to enact initiatives. Please join me in thanking the stellar group. <laughs>